0: You are listening to the Lit Summary Podcast presented by LearnOutLoud.com. This podcast is for those of you who hunger for the classics but find it difficult to find time to read them all. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. In this audio lecture provided as part of the Modern Scholar series, Noted author and literary critic Harold Bloom provides his unparalleled analysis of Shakespeare's tragic love story. Focusing his attention squarely on the role Juliet plays in the drama, Bloom argues that it is her characterization and dialogue that marks the beginning of Shakespeare's maturity as an artist. In this tale, we see what may be the definitive portrait of a woman in love, and indeed Juliet's ability to find words for complicated emotions, is a major reason Romeo and Juliet have become the romantic ideal.
1: Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar Series, where great professors teach you. My name is Richard Poe, and I'll be your host. Today we begin a course entitled Shakespeare, the Seven Major Tragedies. Your professor is Harold Bloom, Sterling Professor of the Humanities and English at Yale University. Professor Bloom received his Ph.D. from Yale in 1955 and has been a member of the Yale faculty since then. He is the author of many books, including Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, Hamlet, Poem Unlimited, The Western Canon, The Books and School of the Ages, The Anxiety of Influence, A Theory of Poetry, How to Read and Why, Stories and Poems for Extremely Intelligent Children of All Ages, Genius, A Mosaic of 100 Exemplary Creative Minds, and A Map of Misreading. He is also co-editor with Lionel Trilling of Romantic Poetry and Prose and Victorian Poetry and Prose. Shakespeare invented characters in a new kind of way. He not only gave them personality and depth, he gave them life. Not a life that went simply from point to point, but one that developed rather than unfolded. In so doing, Shakespeare created characters with whom everyone can identify whether the characters were kings and queens or fools and merchants. Shakespeare's seven great tragedies contain unmistakable elements that set them apart from any other plays ever written. In Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare embodied in the character of Juliet the world's most impressive representation ever of a woman in love. With Julius Caesar, the great playwright produced a drama of astonishing and perpetual relevance. In Hamlet, Shakespeare created a character with the most brilliant mind in all of literature. And the character of Iago in Othello has been the very archetype of the villain ever since. King Lear presents audiences with unparalleled emotional and intellectual demands. Macbeth is a play of ruthless economy in which Shakespeare forces his audience into intimate sympathy with a man not far from being a mass murderer. Finally, in Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare created something entirely new, a vast political and historical conspectus involving the whole world. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and, yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin. Shakespeare, The Seven Major Tragedies, Lecture 1, Romeo and Juliet. And now, Professor Bloom.
2: This will be a sequence of 14 talks on Shakespeare's seven major tragedies. Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra. My prime purpose in these 14 talks is to emphasize Shakespeare's unrivaled greatness in creating utterly persuasive human beings, people whom we all feel somehow existed in nature, even though Shakespeare brings them into being, we find that so astonishing that it is almost difficult to give it credence. Therefore, though I am dealing with seven very complex structures, two of them in particular, Hamlet and King Lear, may well be the most complex literary works uh, ever created, and they may well Call for both such astonishing intellectual apprehension in relation to them and overwhelming need for an emotional response to such shattering intensity of human suffering. Nevertheless, I wish, even with Hamlet and Lear, as with all the other. Of the seven major tragedies that I will discuss, I want to focus on human beings and in each case on the major personalities, the major characters of each drama. Thus, with Romeo and Juliet, most certainly with Juliet. With Julius Caesar, one needs to spend almost equal time on Brutus and on Julius Caesar because there's a hidden relationship between the two that I think is at the heart of the play with such extraordinary figures as Hamlet, as Othello and his nemesis Iago, with King Lear, with the overwhelming intensity of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, and with the extraordinary personalities of Antony and Cleopatra, one is dealing with mixtures of good and evil, not figures of absolute virtue like Juliet. And that is where I think both the difficulty and the power of Shakespeare most deeply reside. I think... For me, Shakespeare's greatest distinction, aside from what I have elsewhere called his invention of the human, that is to say, so representing human personality as to affect all of our personalities, the most remarkable of all Shakespeare's achievements is that he is the only dramatist that we have in the entire history of Western drama who is equally excellent at comedy and at tragedy. But he was more naturally, you might say, a comic dramatist than he was a tragic one. Some of the earliest of the comedies, The Comedy of Errors and The Taming of the Shrew, are already Shakespeare upon his heights. In Tragedy, he begins with Titus Andronicus which I can only rescue by asserting that, to me, it seems a send-up. It seems a satire upon such blood and gore pieces as those by George Peel, Thomas Kidd, and Christopher Marlowe. It is with Romeo and Juliet, his second tragedy, that Shakespeare truly discovers himself. And here I want to emphasize, as I will throughout this discussion, the extraordinary greatness of Juliet herself. Aristotle, in his poetics, discoursing upon tragedy and not upon comedy, had said that there were six elements, including plot and character, which were of the greatest importance for the tragic dramatist. Shakespeare tended, in general, to be terribly uninterested in plot. He would steal a plot wherever he could find one, and that is what he is doing in Romeo and Juliet and, indeed, in all of the major tragedies. But in Romeo and Juliet, he is inventing character in a new kind of way, and in the character and personality of Juliet in particular, he is giving us what, to this day, is the most persuasive and impressive representation that we have of a young woman in love, or indeed of any woman in love with a man. And I want therefore to begin with the extraordinary scene in which Juliet's greatness is first fully revealed to us. I am in act two of the play, and I am in scene two, and Romeo, who is very young, of course, Juliet is very young also. She is not quite 14 years old, but emotionally speaking, humanly speaking, she has developed in consciousness and in total range of human capacity far beyond uh, Romeo. Though He's a very promising young man indeed, perhaps no more than two years older than she is, They have fallen in love with one another. They are declaring their love. She is on the balcony. This is the famous balcony scene. He is down below. Their love is a prohibited love because their respective noble houses in Verona are ferociously and murderously opposed to one another. Romeo is protesting, Lady, by yonder blessed moon, I vow that tips with silver all these fruit tree tops. And sensing that his language is still too conventional and is not authentically expressing what it is that he feels, she replies magnificently, "Oh swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon that monthly changes in her circled orb, lest the thy love prove likewise variable and Romeo, being at this point a rather baffled young man, says, "What shall I swear by?" And she replies most beautifully, Do not swear at all, or if thou wilt, swear by thy gracious self, which is the God of my idolatry, and I'll believe thee. And the poor fellow, still not understanding the kind of direct and original expression of his heart that she Desires starts in again, If my heart's dear love, and she interrupts him with this extraordinary speech, and then a wonderful dialogue takes place between them, which I wish to discuss with you. Juliet resignedly says, Well, do not swear. Although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden. Too like the lightning which doth cease to be, ere one can say, it lightens. Sweet good night, this bud of love, by summer's ripening breath, may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. Good night, good night, as sweet repose and rest come to thy heart, as that within my breast, and he is completely confused. He says, oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? And she replies, and now she is rather puzzled, what satisfaction canst thou have tonight? And he says, the exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. And again, most exquisitely and maturely, she says, I gave thee mine before thou didst request it, and yet I would it were to give again, and he misunderstands her completely and cries out in anguish, Wouldst thou withdraw it? For what purpose, love? And magnificently she replies, and these are my favorite lines in the play, and I think Shakespeare himself must have been quite overwhelmed at what he had suddenly created. She says, But to be frank and give it thee again. And yet I wish. But for the thing I have, my bounty is as boundless as the sea. That's a most extraordinary line. My bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. I hear some noise within, dear love, and she says, good night to him. But consider how extraordinary those lines are. Nietzsche once said, and we will find Hamlet exemplifying this, and indeed most of Shakespeare's tragic protagonists exemplify this. Nietzsche once wrote, and he was thinking of Hamlet, that for which we can find words is something already dead in our hearts. There is always a kind of satire. There's always a kind of torment there's always a kind of falsity in the act of speaking that certainly would be true of hamlet who never quite says what he means or quite means what he says but it is totally untrue of juliet what she is finding words for is something absolutely alive in her heart and i want to repeat those lines one more time my bounty is as boundless as the sea my love as deep The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. Shelley, writing very much under the influence of this in his epipsychidion, cries out, True love in this differs from gold and clay, for to divide is not to take away. And he is emulating and echoing uh, Juliet. She has declared her extraordinary greatness... And yet also, in a very deep sense, she has told us what her tragedy is to be about. It is not, as Aristotle said, a tragic flaw which is going to mark this great tragic heroine. But far from it, her tragedy is indeed her greatness as a human being. Her tragedy is the totality of her love, the fact that she loves without reservation and you can see throughout the play how Romeo in spite of the fact that they have so little time to spend together is learning from her and is trying to raise himself up to the level of her love I once made the observation that what Shakespeare shows us is that in a sense all women must marry down because I think that Shakespeare truly believes in the natural superiority of women particularly where the whole question of the significant human emotion of love and selflessness attendant upon it are concerned. Uh, One way of seeing how beautifully he has learned is to look at the other of the two really great scenes between them, the Orbeid or Dawn song that they, in effect, chant together. You might almost say sing together. It is so extraordinarily lyrical, after they have been secretly married and they have spent the single night of love together, that ever they are to enjoy. This is Act 3, the beginning of Scene 5. Romeo and Juliet are at the window looking out on the dawn and Juliet is desperate to prolong their time. Romeo, who has been schooled by her in reality, and who knows that it is death for him to stay and be discovered there by his enemies, her parents and her kin, nevertheless is trying this time to bring her to reality. Juliet says, "'Wilt thou be gone? It is not yet near day. "'It was the nightingale and not the lark that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear.' Nightly she sings on yon pomegranate tree. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. And Romeo, with a kind of tragic intensity of truth, says, It was the lark, the herald of the morn, no nightingale. Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. And then, lines of astonishing beauty. Night's candles are burnt out and Yochonde stands tiptoe on the misty mountain tops. I must be gone and live or stay and die. That extraordinary moment shows not so much a reversal of greatnesses on their part, but shows indeed how he has begun to be transformed by her extraordinary influence upon him which is in the end a lesson in love and nothing but a lesson in love. But I mustn't, in my remarks, concentrate only upon these two figures, though I will come back to them at the close. There are two other extraordinary characters in Romeo and Juliet. Mercutio, the best friend of Romeo who is an extraordinarily witty but foul-mouthed fellow. He can scarcely open his mouth except to utter some sexual innuendo or obscenity, and the nurse who has raised Juliet, but who turns out to be someone who cannot be trusted and who in the end seems to be as unstable as Mercutio. They are great comic figures... But there is a very curious edge to them, and I do not think finally that we get to like either of them very much. They both provide very great parts, and the moment of Mercutio's death is an extraordinary indication of Shakespeare's skill in the play. Romeo has come between Mercutio and one of the kinsmen of Juliet, desperately trying to Prevent a fight between them, and in the course of it, Mercutio has received his death wound, delivered under Romeo's arm by Tybalt, and Romeo speaks to Mercutio. I'm in Act 3, Scene 1, and says to him, Courage, man, the hurt cannot be much, and Mercutio answers magnificently in prose, And it's hilarious, it is courageous, but at the same time it brings forth that tradition of theatrical history which says that Shakespeare kills off Mercutio so early because otherwise Mercutio would kill the play by capturing all the male interest from Romeo. Mercutio says, no, tis not so deep as a well, nor so wide as a church door, but tis enough. Twill serve. Ask for me tomorrow, and you shall find me a grave man. I am pepid. I warrant for this world a plague of both your houses. And with that, you have the disappearance from the play of this very great figure, whose, I think, function in the play. Is to show what Romeo is getting away from a kind of lightness in erotic matters of which he has been cured permanently by falling deeply and with utter conviction in love with Juliet who represents a higher order of existence than he has ever known before this time and indeed I believe she represents that for the audience also. And I want to say something more about her greatness well before I close. But I want at this point to contrast the two of them in their reaction to the wedding, which is about to take place. This is at the very end of the second act. Friar Lawrence is about to... Marry them. Listen to the difference between them. Romeo says, Ah, Juliet, if the measure of thy joy be heaped like mine, and that thy skill be more to blazon it, then sweeten with thy breath this neighbor air, and let rich music's tongue unfold the imagined happiness that both receive in either by this dear encounter. He is utterly intoxicated still by what is happening to him and is being caught up into a world which simply departs this earth, Juliet, a deeper nature and more powerfully attuned to reality, indeed more attuned to reality than surely almost all among us, says, conceit more rich in matter than in words brags of his substance, not of ornament. They are but beggars that can count their worth. She is again finding another way of saying, my bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep. And she goes on to say again magnificently, but my true love is grown to such excess, I cannot sum up some of half my wealth. She is saying that language... Like the ornate language in which he has just delivered his wonderful declaration of happiness is not adequate to convey the full reality of what is breaking upon the two. A reality in which they share, but again, he is neither mature enough humanly nor adept enough emotionally to fully meet her greatness. I want to pass now to moments that take us towards the close of the play. And I want to involve very much the figure of the nurse and the rather extraordinary brutality that she manifests. This is something I think that is frequently misunderstood when people read this play or see a good production of it or indeed listen to most critical discussions of it because The nurse is, after all, a very vivid figure, rather like Chaucer's wife of Bath, um, very passionate, uh, like Mercutio himself, uh, very given to sexual innuendos and intensities. But something about her is ultimately hollow. When the nurse tells Juliet that she must forget Romeo, and take the county Paris, who has been set up by her parents to be her husband, Juliet reacts angrily, what devil, this is speaking to the nurse whom she has loved since she was a child and who has loved her, Julia says, what devil art thou that dost torment me thus? This torture should be roared in dismal hell. Hath Romeo slain himself? Say thou but I, and that bear of our eye shall poison more than any deaf darting eye. I am not I, if there be such an eye, or if those eyes shut that makes the answer I. The nurse lies and says, I saw the wound, he is dead. Juliet cries out, O oh, break, O oh, break my heart. And then suddenly she realizes that the nurse is getting things mixed up and that it is Tybalt who is dead, slain by Romeo in vengeance for his having killed Mercutio. And Juliet comes to understand this. And finally Romeo is banished and the nurse says there's no trust, no faith, no honesty in men. It doesn't matter which man after all you married all perjured, all forsworn, all naught, all dislembers. And Juliet says, blistered be thy tongue for such a wish. The nurse says, will you speak well of him that killed your cousin? And Juliet replies, shall I speak ill of him that is my husband? And when the nurse finally says to her, that this is simply the way things are, and you will have to accept this, then Juliet says, Thou hast comforted me wondrous well, and totally dismisses the nurse. But I want now to return to what I think is the heart of this drama, which is indeed the heart of Juliet herself. In all of the Western tradition of literature that leads up to Shakespeare, There is no comparable portrait of a young woman really a young girl as I say she is just going on 14 but she is extraordinarily mature of what it means to be a young woman or indeed any young person deeply and authentically in love and in Shakespeare's way of showing the constant generosity of Juliet's nature in his technique for unveiling the ultimate secrets of the human heart. He teaches us, I think, a wisdom that no one has surpassed throughout Western tradition. The great modern philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein once coined an extraordinary aphorism I will translate it from the German. Love is not a feeling. Love, unlike pain, is put to the test. One does not say that was not a true pain because it passed away so quickly. That's so subtle that I want to repeat it a second time. And while he did not mean it to have direct application to Juliet. It is one of the best characterizations I know of the authenticity and the permanence of her love for Romeo. Her love is not a feeling. Her love, unlike pain, is put to the test. None of us would say, after a really intense pain was over, that was not a true pain because it passed away so quickly. But that defines the difference between love in the high sense of Juliet and a mere pain, a mere negative affect of any sort. Now, there is a question that has always fascinated me, which is what precedent did Shakespeare have for Juliet? And the answer is that he has no precedent. There is no figure in Western literature or in anything he could ever have read that would have taught him how to create this amazing representation of a warm, generous, overflowing, all but selfless personality, giving herself away absolutely and completely in love for a young man and doing it permanently and knowing indeed that it is permanent and is going to be permanent. And I want to use Romeo and Juliet now very much as an introduction to this whole course of talks that I shall be giving on the seven major Tragedies, in one sense, as the first of the seven major tragedies, in one sense, it is necessarily the least. Shakespeare is learning his art as he goes. And yet, with Juliet, he has taken a kind of quantum leap and given us something not only unprecedented, but not surpassed ever since. And that, I think takes one very deep into the tragic world as Shakespeare conceives it. All of us know that we can say of a particular person, he or she has an extremely pleasant personality, but I do not trust his or her character. All of us also know that we can say of other persons, She or he has a remarkable moral character, but I am not at all pleased by his or her personality. Before Shakespeare, character and what we would now call personality are very different entities. Shakespeare, and I believe he does this in Juliet, before he does it anywhere else, with anyone else. And I believe that in doing so, he teaches himself, as well as all the rest of us, something extraordinary which we could not have learned without him. Though I I want to be very clear about this. I wrote a huge book on Shakespeare, a commentary on all of his plays, including all of the tragedies, called Shakespeare, the Invention of the Human and there were many protests of people saying, well, you can't literally mean that Shakespeare invented the human. There were human beings before Shakespeare. There was great literature from Homer through Virgil to Dante on to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales well before Shakespeare. In what sense do you mean that Shakespeare invented the human? And I think it has a very clear sense, and I think that Juliet gives me a wonderful illustration of it and teaches me a great deal about how to sharpen and make more precise my own critical metaphor, if one wants to call it that, of Shakespeare's invention of the human. It is not that Shakespeare brings something into the world that was never there before him. It is that Shakespeare so handles reality finds different ways and modes and means of getting on all sides of reality at once, as he does with the reality of the character and personality of Juliet, that he enables us to see things that were always there, but that we never would have been able to see without him. There have doubtless been... Young women in reality, in nature, in human life, in human history, in all ages since the world began, as magnificent as Juliet, as generous, as absolutely capable of falling completely and permanently in love with the right person, and intuitively knowing exactly who that right person is, this must always have existed in reality. And perhaps Shakespeare himself, who was a keen observer of humankind, because who else could have written the plays, let alone the seven major tragedies, perhaps Shakespeare had met such a person, though we do not know that that was the case, or if it was the case, we certainly do not know who that person was. But because Shakespeare wrote the role or part of Juliet, if you wish to call it that, though I think we cannot ever speak about the great Shakespearean roles simply as parts or scripts for an actor, because to an amazing extent they have usurped reality itself. It fascinates me that I have had students from all over the world and have myself attended performances of Shakespeare all over the world, that I have taught Shakespeare in many, many different countries on several continents. I have sat with audiences watching productions of Shakespeare in many, many languages. And quite frequently, the bulk of the audience have been people who were not actually literate in their very own languages, who could not read it. And yet, I have seen them swept up again and again by Shakespearean tragedy, by Shakespearean comedy, by Shakespearean romance, by Shakespearean history or tragicomedy, because they are firmly persuaded that Shakespeare has put themselves, their families, their neighbors those they have fallen in love with, those they might fall in love with, has put them there on the stage. This is such a miracle that there is nothing comparable to it in the history of literature. If you consider the authors since Shakespeare, and they're all of them deeply influenced by Shakespeare, perhaps in English only Jane Austen and Charles Dickens have successfully created a number of vivid, intense, and permanent human beings as Shakespeare has. But it is the rarest of gifts. And it comes, I think, from what I want to emphasize in the concluding minutes of this brief talk on Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare's art is certainly an art of language, of an enormous control Over the resources of language. Indeed, Shakespeare can be said to have reinvented the English language. He has the largest vocabulary that we know of of any author who has ever written. Of that vocabulary, he invented fully 1,800 words himself, and 1,200 of those words are still in common usage. In England and the United States or wherever English is spoken in the world today and of course English has now replaced French as the international lingua franca you go to Indonesia or you go to Denmark and you are not asked to speak French you are asked to speak English so certainly Shakespeare's enormous control of language his ability to reinvent language is an enormous element in his art But there are two elements that I think are even more important and even more powerful. And in this, he goes beyond anything that Aristotle prescribed for the tragic dramatist. One element, most certainly, is the creation of personality added to the representation of character. And I do not believe we can find that before Shakespeare. Personality, in our sense, though he does not use the word is a Shakespearean invention. But finally, and I want to emphasize this as I close, there is the entire question of cognitive power, of capacity for thinking. Shakespeare thinks more originally and more inventively than any writer before him or since in any language I am able to read. His unique among the world's authors in that regard. And in giving us Juliet, he has not only found a way of integrating a superb personality with a deep and immensely moving character, he has not only found language of absolute eloquence and memorability for her to speak, but most of all, He has thought his way into her mind, so that in a very deep sense, we can say he is Juliet. The great romantic critic William Hazlitt once said of Hamlet, it is we who are Hamlet. I would say that in some sense, though we cannot live up to Juliet, in some sense there is something in every one of us, female and male, that is Juliet.
1: This ends Lecture 1.